How many of you guys have sat through a college orientation? You know, there's a few, yeah. There's, there's the official ones where they tell you all the, you know, the dean or whoever gets up there and they, they tell you where the, the lunchroom is and what the discipline policies are and, and all this sort of stuff. But in some ways, even more valuable are the uh, unofficial orientations that you get from students that are already there. And I think of my own college experience, there were some things that I wish a couple of students had told me about that they never did, but I found out the hard way. One, like, when you're in downtown Chicago, there's a McDonald's on Chicago Avenue where there's a blind guy in a wheelchair. I wish somebody had told me, if you're having a conversation with him and another person walks down the street and starts swearing at him, Jump out of the way because he's going to start swinging his walking stick indiscriminately and hit you really hard. I wish somebody had warned me about that. Or, or if you're going to take a shower on your dorm floor 100 feet from your dorm room, make sure you keep your clothes within eyesight. Maybe even better yet, have them somewhere in a dry corner of the shower with you because it's a long, cold, vulnerable walk back to your dorm room. <laughs> Some of the, the unofficial orientations that I did get that I was thankful for, I got the warning up front. When you're in the cafeteria, don't eat the blazing red fish. Because it is blazing and it is red, but we really don't think it's fish. So I went four years without eating the, the blazing red fish. And one other one orientation that I was thankful for, every dorm floor had its lounge with the fridge in it, and some of the guys on my floor said, hey, you see that Mountain Dew in there? That belongs to Paul. Paul's a senior, and he's got a trick the first couple weeks of school to keep people from stealing his soda. All the dew in that bottle isn't necessarily from the mountain. <laughs> some of that dew is from Paul, so st <laughs> stay away from Paul's soda. I was thankful to have... <laughs> An orientation of what to expect, some things I could count on at school before I started my, my years at Moody Bible Institute. As I uh, look at Acts 14 and look at Paul and Barnabas' journeys around the empire, they're on this first missionary journey. We've shared 1,400 miles. Took them like a year or two. They make all these stops sharing the gospel of Jesus. And as I looked at Acts 14, what I started to see was four things that you can count on as you go out and share the gospel. Four things that you can count on as you step out of this room into our community, into our world, overseas, right here at home, as you share the good news of Jesus. The first one, first thing you can count on as you step out and share the good news of Jesus is division and persecution. And what I mean by division is you're going to run into some people that are going to embrace the message of Jesus wholeheartedly. And you're going to run into another group of people that's going to hate you for even bringing it up. And they're going to fight you on it. And there's going to be persecution, either verbal or in some cases physical. I get this from verses 1 through 7, but just to catch you up where we're at, and they got me a cool laser so I don't even have to go up there anymore. I want to show you the trip. Just a quick review. <laughs> Isn't that cool? 
They said I could also point it at anybody who's sleeping out here. So. <laughs> they started in Antioch of Syria, then they went over to Barnabas's home island of Cyprus, Salamis, Paphos, and then they went up to Italia. Last week we left them off in Antioch of Pisidia where we looked at that message that Paul preached in the synagogue about the, the history of the Jews and, and how it all pointed to Jesus. This week we're going to look as they travel from there to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe and then make the home trip back to Antioch of Syria. This whole area that we're looking at today, this will come in handy as, as we go on, is in an area of the Roman Empire called Galatia. So keep in mind that whenever you read the letter to the Galatians in your Bible, the, the encounters that he's making on this missionary trip are the very people that he has in mind as he wrote that letter. It wasn't just a, a theological exercise for him. He was very concerned about the people that we're going to hear about today. So let's dive in in verse 1. We learn at the end of chapter 13, they left Antioch of Pisidia and went to Iconium. That's about 80 miles. And verse 1 says, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Now, Iconium, there's an interesting story even behind the, the name of this city. You catch what the first four letters are? Icon, which means image. There, there was a legend around this city. There's a large Greek influence here that some Greek gods, Prometheus and Athena, after a great flood that destroyed all the earth, they came down and formed the image of man out of mud and, and breathed life into them, and that's where man was recreated. It sounds a little bit familiar, right, if you know your Bible. But that's some of the, the backdrop to this city. And Paul walks into this city that knows this legend, their city's named after this legend, to talk to them not about... God bringing physical life to mankind, but he wants to talk to them about a God who sent his son in the image of man as a man to bring them spiritual life. And he's going to tell them about Jesus. And we read that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Here's where the division starts. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So even as some are starting to come to Jesus, there's this group of Jews that wants nothing to do with God's message about Jesus Christ, and they begin to whisper, this guy's not telling you the truth. This is a lie. This is heresy. You need to walk away from this. And they stir up this controversy. Now, it's interesting to think about, okay, the pot's starting to get hot. It's starting to boil. You know, they're, they're, things are getting tough in the city. What's Paul and Barnabas' response going to be? Verse 3, check this out. So... This is a crazy word here. Another word would be therefore, as a result of. Because the Jews are doing this, what do Paul and Barnabas do? Do they leave? No. It says they spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. They know that the controversy is brewing and that it could lead to physical and other kinds of harm to them. They say, okay, we need to stay here and preach even more boldly because there's a battle here, and God has called us here for this moment, for this battle. So they go on to do that, and God gives them miracles to confirm the, the word. And here's where you get the division. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. 
There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. So they stay in the heat of it for a while, but there's a point where, even as Jesus said, if they persecute you in one city, head to the next. You don't have to be stupid. All right, but, but where we want to go here is the message of Jesus, the biblical Jesus, is a divisive message. Expect that as you go out. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 12, as he sent his disciples out, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to bring division. Even in a home, there will be three members of a home divided against two, and two against three. And what he's saying is, as the message about me is preached, some will decide to believe, some will reject it, and there will be a division. I'm telling you today, if you preach the biblical Jesus, it will bring division. He promised it. There's another politically correct little Jesus running around that's real comfortable hanging out with all the other little little God friends that everybody has, and he's just comfortable being put on the shelf next to them in everyone's lives and put on their little charm bracelet right next to all the other idols and and false gods. That's not the, the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He says, when you take me, you don't take me along with these other gods. You take me instead of, I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's a divisive message. How many of you guys know John Dickerson, pastor of Cornerstone Church? Anybody read his article this week? He wrote a great article on foxnews.com. If you go on and Google John Dickerson, he's a great writer, great journalist, about a book that, that's hitting the charts big out, out in our country called Zealot. Zealot, just so you know, is written by a Muslim. And the book basically presents Muslim views of Jesus that blatantly contradict what the Bible teaches about Jesus. Anybody can write a book about whatever they want, so that's not the problem. The problem John was addressing is that as this book is introduced in our country, it's not presented as though it's from a Muslim author. It's presented as though here's some new and groundbreaking information about Jesus so you can know the real truth that the Bible missed. And there's nothing new about it. And John's article basically just said, hey, let's, let's be honest about where we're coming from when we put a book out there. When we interview him on a news show, let's not present him as merely a scholar who's bringing new, new truth to life. Let's present him as the Muslim that he is and be honest. If I write a book about Jesus, I probably ought to convey that I'm a Christian. That's the, the bias I'm coming from. If you're a Muslim... Let, let's get that out there. And since he's put that article out there, he shared the other day that he's been called a bigot. He's been called shameful. He's been called ignorant. And he requested prayer from, from the rest of us that know him for strength because he's feeling the heat and the division that comes when you have the boldness to stand up and, and speak something true in our world. The real Jesus is divisive, and we need to expect that when we step out there. But I want to throw out an idea here. Most of us in, in our culture, I mean, I know it's saturated 
with political correctness. It's saturated with tolerance. And the whole premise of these arguments is very shaky. You can see it from just a couple of statements that, that it's flawed. You know, for instance, somebody says, you believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe, and we can both be right. But what if what I believe says what you believe is a lie? You, you see it start to crumble. Or someone says, there is no such thing as absolute truth. Is that true? And the whole foundation, we cannot survive logically without this notion of truth. And I want to say that in a broken world, what if division is the best option? Maybe you cringe a little bit at that because most of us don't like to be divisive. We don't set out there to be annoying or a pest or divisive. But what if division in the name of Jesus is the best option in a broken world? Think about it. Would it be better that Paul goes into this city and some are saved or that the whole city went to hell? It's better that there was some division and at least some of the city was saved. And you think about it in today's world. Would it be better if we go out there and preach the, the truth of Jesus and some divide and separate from the meaninglessness of political correctness and embrace him as their savior? Or would it be better for the whole world to hold hands and smile and walk together into the pit of hell? Unified but all walking into darkness. I thought of a real clear picture of division being a good thing. You think about what our, what our hotshot guys do and hotshot crews around the country. They go out into a burning forest and you've got sections that are black. Those are the sections that are burned. You've got sections that are green where there's, new, there's other trees, fuel. And they go out and they, they dig a dividing line with their tools between the fire and the green. They divide it to save the trees over here. That dividing line becomes a very important thing. They use it to save trees, to save homes, etc. I see the gospel like that. There's destruction coming on this world for those who do not embrace Jesus as their Savior. And as we present Jesus as this dividing line, it's as though we're saying, Satan and sin, your destruction stops right here. You're not going to have this family you're not going to have this city. You're not going to have this country. We are laying the dividing line, the saving line of Jesus here. And yes, it's divisive. But when people are divided out of darkness and into light, when they're divided out of death and into life, I say that division in a broken world is the best option. We just need to be aware that it's coming and stay faithful. Don't be surprised when it comes. Next one I want to share is when we go out there, we need to count on the message of God's goodness. Things heat up there in Iconium and they head over to Lystra, which is about 24 miles away. First we're going to read it and then we're going to give a little background. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, 
and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now watch what happens now. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to him. There's this religious fervor. They think their Greek gods have showed up. And they want to start sacrificing to him. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes. Usually Jews, when they did that, about four or five inches from the neck, just is a sign of grief that something's going on here that should not be going on here. They tore their clothes and rushed out in the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news. I want to stop here before we share the message that Paul shared there. Because last week, you remember we talked about how he, he knew his audience where he was? This audience here, Lycaonian, shorten that down to lichen. What's that root, root word for? Those of you who know your science fiction. Wolf. Yes, Lycaonian meant land of the wolf. Okay? You say, okay. Some of you are thinking about Teen Wolf. Some of you are thinking about Twilight. I want you to come back to me. <laughs> come back. <laughs> there were some legends that these people really believed were true that had happened in their city. One of them was that their god Zeus came down sort of undercover one day to visit the people. But there was a king in the area that wasn't convinced it was really Zeus. And to find out if it really was Zeus, this king came up with a great idea. I'm going to go kill someone. So the next messenger that shows up at his house, he murders, and he has him cooked. And he, when, when the guy who is Zeus comes to his house to sit down and eat, this king presents this cooked messenger, and he's thinking, hey, if this guy's really Zeus, he, he will know this is a human being and he won't eat it. So this is my test. But Zeus, being Zeus, finds out what he did and turned the guy into a wolf. So you get the land of the wolf idea. One other story that these guys believed was true that was fresh in their minds was that Zeus and Hermes, the very two guys that they think Paul and Barnabas are here, showed up in this city. And they were looking for a place to stay, undercover again. And so they walked to a thousand houses in the city looking for hospitality. And the first 1,000, nobody offers it until finally there's a, a couple named Philemon and Bossus with a little straw house outside the city. They show up there and they welcome them in. They give them a feast that stretches their finances. And Zeus and Hermes turn their little straw hut into this fantastic temple. The 1,000 homes that did not welcome them, they destroyed. So with those two pictures of God, Zeus, Hermes, in the back of their mind, what, what's, what's your primary reaction when you know that's how your gods sort of sneak around and act? What, 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 how do you feel towards the supernatural? Scared for your life. Like, if these guys ever show up again, we better make sure we welcome them good. Fast forward 50 years, they think it's them. No wonder the priest is like, get the bulls, get the, get the garland. Let's, 
We got to make sure they feel welcome this time. Or else. Their primary thought of the supernatural is, is fear. It's into that context that call comes. And what does it say he preaches about the real God? In verse 15 there. He says, we're bringing you good news. Check this out. Telling you to turn from these worthless things. This, this Zeus stuff, this, this Hermes stuff, this fear. Turn from that to the living God. And he's going to show them how good he is. Who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. Check this out. He has shown kindness. Oh, what a, what a revolutionary thought. A God who's kind by, by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And I think while when we go out and share the good news of God, Jesus, we need to present a God who is holy and just and punishes sin. We need to couch our whole message in terms of God is love. God is love. First John says this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Romans 2 says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. When we realize how kind and how giving and generous and loving God is, especially in his son Jesus Christ, that ought to be the primary draw to people coming to him. And that ought to frame our whole conversation with folks. That's where Paul was going. And I have a hunch, I could be wrong, that he would have gone on to point directly to Jesus, as he always did in every city. But he runs into an obstacle. These people, it says, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And check this out. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. The ones that came from Antioch, this is over 100 miles. No cars, five days' journey. Just as Paul had been so passionate about persecuting Christians that he left Jerusalem to travel to Damascus, he was converted, and Jesus said, I'll show you how much you must suffer. Now he's the one being tracked down from city to city. Over 100 miles, the Jews come from Antioch and Iconium, and they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul. And Luke doesn't go into a whole lot of details, but just stop. They stoned him. They threw rocks some large, some small, at Paul that hit him brutally. They stoned him, dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. So unless you think this was just something light, they, they hit him so good, they, they believed he was dead. He was obviously unconscious. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he's got some new converts here that come boldly outside the city to be around him. Check this out. Anybody read that next line? He got up and went back into the city. <laughs> what in the world? Something that I think is, is cool. He found one of his most important disciples in this city. We learn later on in the book of Acts. A young man named Timothy who evidently heard the gospel on this first journey. 
And as you guys know the story of Timothy, Timothy would later go on to become a pastor. Think about this moment when you think about what Paul later writes to Timothy, because Timothy battles fear, timidity, as many of us do, when it comes to sharing the gospel. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy? He said, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. And I believe that Timothy's mind probably, it surely raced back to this moment. This is not just some idea for this Paul. I watched him walk back into my city after they nearly killed him. He lived out that spirit of power and boldness. What, what an impact this moment must have had on young Timothy. As the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby, which is about 60 miles away. Now, the next, next thing, we've, we've talked about counting on division and persecution. We've talked about counting on the message of God's goodness. I want to talk about counting on other believers. The absolute necessity of that as we go out and share the gospel. Verse 21, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large, large number of disciples. That's Derby. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Their words of encouragement are interesting. I don't know how well this word of encouragement would go over on most Sunday morning services. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, the original place they started from, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now, I want to point out a couple of things. If we can go to the map for a second. Their last city there, when they were in Derby, it would have been a 300-mile journey across land to get back to their, their home point. They, they could have gone the 300-mile route. Instead, they went back to all the cities where they had been over 600 miles to get back home. Did you catch why they did that? Yeah, to encourage them. To encourage them. The idea here is that when it comes to making disciples, we're not called to just make converts. We're called to walk alongside them together as they begin to grow in their new faith. The first part of the Great Commission is make disciples. Then it talks about baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything God has commanded. That happens in churches. That happens in the body. Aaron and Aaron said a beautiful little girl this week, Adrielle Alette. I just, have you seen the pictures? Beautiful little girl. She wasn't named Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> But I, but I thought about this, this little baby. You know, how many of you, I don't know if Aaron and Aaron, if you ever considered 
you know, as soon as she was born and cleaned up, like just giving her a hundred bucks and, and a water bottle and setting her outside the hospital and saying, all right, go get them. Good luck. Never crossed your mind, did it? You know, this baby needs nurture, needs care, needs a family. You get where I'm going. When someone just comes to Christ, our call as a church, as the, the individual that led them to Christ, as, as the body that led them to Christ, is to walk with them, to help them grow up and realize that just like a baby, there's gonna, we're going to have to help them learn how to eat, you know, how, to, how to read that word of God. There's going to be some poopy diapers that we have to help them clean up. And, and it's going to be messy sometimes, but we don't bail when they... Ha- how many poopy diapers you change this week? <laughs> Did you ever say, I'm done? <laughs> Maybe you said it, but you, I, I know you didn't really. <laughs> You're still there, right? Is that, <laughs> that's a baby. They, they need nurture. And that's what you see Paul's heart here for discipleship. They went twice the distance just so they could go back and encourage these guys to remain true to the faith. And like I said, part of encouragement for them is not this feel-good message. It's, hey, let me tell you about reality. There's persecution coming. How's that encouraging? That way when it does come, yeah, we saw this coming. Jesus said it. They hated me, they'll hate you also. This is no surprise to God. But it's through that that we enter the kingdom of God. God's complete reign on our lives and in our hearts comes as we obey him, even in the hard times, he tells them. It's not just that he encouraged them. It says he appointed elders, verse 23, for them in each church. So you see him planting these little churches, and these little churches have shepherds. That's a biblical idea, that churches have a team of leaders that care for the people, that that's part of God's plan, and that's what Paul practices here. And then check this out. I love this. With prayer and fasting... Set aside their food for a while. This was so important to them. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Paul knew that at the end of the day, their primary dependence was not upon him. It was upon Jesus, the Lord, the head of the church. And he committed them into his care. He he knew where it was. These were not his. They were Jesus' people. The importance of community. You guys know this. You step out on mission sometimes. It's frightening. It's frightening to be the one at your workplace that speaks the name of the biblical Jesus and what he did when you're the only one. And when you're going out there, Francis Chan talks about when you're on mission and you see somebody else who's on mission, you notice it right away because you're like the weirdest people out there. Like, (laughs) oh, That guy's talking about Jesus too. And there's this natural desire to say, hey, I want to hang with that guy because I need that that fellowship. I need that strength. And that's what missional community, that's what church is all about. Don't go it alone. There, There are no lone rangers in God's economy. We've got to do this mission together. Sometimes it's your own family. You guys all know Martin Luther started the Reformation. You know, at a time when the church was teaching things like, Hey, if you buy this wooden shred of the cross and if you do this many acts of kindness, it can 
cut time off of your purgatory. You can earn your righteousness. He starts looking as a monk in a monastery into the Bible and saying, no, that's not what Romans says. That says salvation is by grace through faith alone. That's what the Bible says. And, and he started the Reformation that you and I stand to benefit from and still do today, 500 years later. You often think of guys like that as invincible lone rangers, but he was also very subject to discouragement and, and being weighed down on a regular basis. He had regular intense battles with the enemy where, where the enemy would whisper lies and discouragement to him so badly that one time he got up and picked up his inkwell that he was using to write and threw it in the corner of his room as though he was throwing it at Satan because he was attacking him so brutally. You know part of what kept him going? It's his wife. His wife. His wife, the way he even met her was pretty cool. After he started the Reformation, there were 12 nuns in a monastery that wanted to break out and, you know, go with this truth. They all hid themselves in 12 barrels. And they were passed out of the monastery into the, the real world. And one of those ended up marrying Martin Luther. So he's... Uh, having one of his bouts of discouragement and it's been going on for weeks and he comes home and she's dressed all in black a very somber face he says why are you dressed like that and with a sense of humor that caused him to smile and get his perspective back on straight she said well, as long as God is dead Martin I thought I should dress for the occasion <laughs> he got the message and he carried on in his fight to, to preach truth. He was encouraged by his wife, another believer. We need to be in this together. So as we go out on the gospel mission, okay, count on division and persecution. Count on the message of God's goodness. Count on each other. Even when Paul comes back. Do you notice, last slide please, 26 to 28. They came back to Antioch of Syria. This is where they had been sent out. This was their home body. They weren't just rogue agents. They were connected to this church in Antioch. In fact, we know from earlier passages, Paul and Barnabas had taught there for a year, even before they were sent out. But they come back there where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. If you think about the multiplication here, they were committed to the grace of God and they're committing new elders to the grace of God in other cities. It's starting to go exponential. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and they had this party. They reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And check this out. It says they stayed there a long time with the disciples. They didn't just get there, give a report, and head back out. They're like, man, this is so good to be with our family. They needed that love, that encouragement, that support. But in there is our fourth and final thing to count on. Count on God to open the door of faith in the people's lives that you share with. Count on God to open the door of faith. You notice the emphasis here. All that God had done through them. This wasn't a look at us show. This was a look what God did. And you think about the unlikeliness of them go going into cities where Greek gods or what everyone knows, and people coming to trust in Jesus, just on human terms, how unlikely that is, but it happened. God opened the door of faith. And, and when you go out, 
I want you to think right now, who is that hardest person that you think, man, I've shared with them for a long time, and they would never, ever come to Jesus. I've told them about them time and time and time again. And I'm not promising that in every case they will, but this passage tells us that God has the power to open the door of faith in that individual's life. One of my favorite stories, how many of you know Josh McDowell? He was an atheist, largely because of the way he grew up. His picture of a father wasn't very fatherly. His father was a drunkard. His father was abusive towards him all growing up. His dad was so bad, and Josh was so ashamed of him. When people would come over, they would tie his dad up in the barn with a hose so that his dad couldn't get where his friends were. Josh didn't believe in God the Father. He didn't believe in God at all, but he grew up and he started to study and started to look at the facts and he realized this does line up, that there really is a God who loves us and sent his son who died and rose again. I believe in this, God. I believe in it. And, and he wrote more than a carpenter. He wrote evidence that demands a verdict, one and two. Great books if you're ever questioning and you want some some stuff to feed your soul on the reality of this. But you talk about a door that, that humanly speaking, would be impossible to open. You think about his dad. But after coming to the Lord, Josh went back to his father in his old age and said, Dad, I forgive you for everything you ever did to me. I lay it down, and I want to tell you why I'm laying it down. I want to tell you about this heavenly father that forgave me. And Josh McDowell's own father gave his life to the Lord. I just think, man, if God can open that door, God could open the door of faith to people in these cities, who is it in our lives that we need to be praying diligently? God, open that door of faith. As we leave here, this is, you know, the beginning of the journey. The end of the service isn't the end. This is the the start, right? We go out there back into our workplace, back into our homes, families, neighborhoods. As you go out, are you counting on the fact that there's going to be division and persecution around you if you share the true biblical Jesus? Count on it. Know that that's going to be part of it. Don't let it dissuade you. A second, as you go out, are you counting on a message of God's goodness? Is that the primary thrust of when you share? I mean, Jesus said it was good news. What's the good news in the good news? It's that God loves you. He died. He sent his son to die for you. That is, that is good news. As you go out there, are you counting on other believers? Or are you going it alone? Last but not least, are you counting on God to open the door of faith? Or have you been counting on yourself? got to count on God to do it. Lord, I thank you so much. I just get excited every time I think about the fact that this early church that we're reading about, this is the same church that we're a part of today. It's the same movement. We're part of the same outward momentum that was dreamed of in your heart before the earth was even created, Lord. That's an awesome thought. And I just pray that the example of Paul and Barnabas and the early church would encourage us as we go out on your mission. 
Lord, I don't know if anyone in this room has felt some persecution, verbal or otherwise, this week. I lift them up to you. I, I pray for John. Lord, he asked for our prayers. Please strengthen him as he takes those, those verbal attacks from, from others. I know how the enemy makes those stick and, and hurt. And Lord, protect him. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that though you are a holy and just God, you've made the way to yourself clear. It's through Jesus. While you will judge our sin if we don't come through him, and he's the only way, you've made that offer to us. It's there. Thank you for your goodness. I pray that everyone in this room has made that choice, and if not, they talk to somebody. Uh, Father, I thank you for the unity in this room in the missional communities. Thank you for the report I heard this week of someone in this room who had a visitor here. The visitor's comment was, I can't believe how much that little group of people loves you. I say, thank you, God. Way to go in this body and keep it up. Help us to love each other, disciple each other, and to count on you to continue to do your saving work. Lord, even as we prepare to take our offering, may it be to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.